This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Gregor Campbell looks at the first radio pioneer in Dunedin. Judy Southworth takes us out to the Taere Plain and reports on pre-European Māori there. And finally, Bill Southworth interviews two researchers from the medical school about the lives of women on the Central Otago goldfields. This year is the 100th anniversary of the Otago Radio Association, which opened the first radio station in Dunedin. It later became Radio Dunedin. Gregor Campbell has been delving into its history. I have a very early memory of the built-in radio in the living room of my family home. It was state-of-the-art when installed, and I was greatly confused to hear it called a wireless. I'd looked inside. There were definitely wires there. I also found it confusing that stations not marked on the dial could be picked up by the set. The word wireless comes from the longer-term wireless telegraphy, the use of the airwaves to send Morse messages as distinct from the electric telegraph, itself a replacement for the visual telegraph of 200 years ago. Long-range radio communication by Morse signal was already well-established and local enthusiasts were tuning into foreign stations when atmospheric conditions permitted in the early 1920s. Dunedin established a radio association shortly before local transmission began a hundred years ago, as reported by the Otago Witness in October 1922. A meeting of the Otago Radio Association was held last week at which the revised schedule of rules was adopted for registration purposes. Arrangements were also made for the organisation of instruction classes in wireless telegraphy and telephony and Morse operating. Members were warned as to the necessity for exercising discrimination in the purchase of apparatus and were invited to bring along their instruments for testing. The association which has a membership role of about 260, has secured rooms in Lower Moray Place and has made arrangements for the erection of the aerial for its station between the City Converter Station building in Cumberland Street and the premises of Mrs John Chambers and Sons. Good progress is being made with the manufacture of the transmitting set and it is anticipated that the association will be ready to begin broadcasting as soon as the valves come to hand. The association will be working with up to 100 watts and should be heard by crystal receiving sets up to a distance of 10 miles. By valve receivers, the station should be heard anywhere in New Zealand. Experimental broadcasting had already been achieved by Professor of Physics Robert Jack, who had brought equipment to Dunedin from the UK and began transmissions with five minutes of a buzzer to allow local enthusiasts to tune their equipment. In December 1921, he received a telegram from Wellington reporting that he had been heard there. He was made patron of the Otago Association and began experiments in what would later be called television. In January 1923, the Evening Star reported on a Dunedin radio sensation. Last night, 
Wireless enthusiasts in Dunedin and suburbs had the opportunity of having what is probably the most successful transmission of wireless telegraphy yet recorded. The Otago Radio Association was conducting an experimental transmission from the club rooms where the artists were singing and performing. Dr Jack at Queenstown and Mr Sutherland at Pukarau were listening in and in the city Mrs Turnbull and Jones had a bun loudspeaker outside their premises which attracted a considerable number of people. The radio supply company had a powerful receiver set in operation at its new rooms in Moray Place and during the evening some hundreds of people were attracted by the huge volume of sound which filled the street and could be heard well down Princess Street. Though the radio supply company has had for some time its powerful receiving plant installed at its rooms, astonishing many people with the volume of sound, this is the first occasion it has given a demonstration in the open air. Judging by the interest created last night, a large crowd is anticipated on Saturday night when a further demonstration will be given. The next year, Mr Frank Bell of Shag Valley made headlines when he was able to communicate with a London schoolteacher. It was a world record for person-to-person communication not to be substantially beaten until Apollo 8 orbited the moon in December 1968. I am Gregor Campbell talking on the wireless for Heritage Matters. Although they were never there in large numbers, pre-European Māori used the Taieri Plain as a valuable food source because what was then a wetland area was rich in eels, whitebait and other river life. This report from Judy Southworth. For most of us, our view of the Taieri Plains is formed by the patchwork of fields and the buildings we see as we fly in to land at Mamona Airport. Those who farm the plains know that efforts have been made to avoid the heavy flooding there in the 1900s. So why is this area so prone to flooding? Māori, who were the first settlers of Otago, found the Taieri a very different area. They called it Taiari. Māori have lived in the vicinity of present-day Dunedin for centuries, and some occupation sites date back to approximately 1000 AD. The wider Dunedin area was of singular importance to the Waitaha, Katimamo and Kaitahu people as a sort of Mahika Kai and Mahika Kaimoana, a place of settlement, a burial place, and ultimately as a cultural landscape that embodied the ancestral, spiritual and religious traditions of all the generations prior to European settlement. Kaitahu were a nomadic people who travelled extensively on land and sea. They travelled from Otakao villages up the Taga Harbour and into bays and inlets within the Dunedin area known as Otipoti. This area was a landing spot and a point from which the Otakao-based Māori would hunt in the surrounding bush. Māori would drag their waka into estuaries and walk by foot to food-gathering areas such as the Taieri. The Taieri was a rich food source with bird life, eels and so forth. Māori were able to follow particular tracks over the peninsula and around the Lawyer's Head area and into the Taieri Plain. According to traditions, the bush was so thick in the Dunedin area that when some European ventured in, they never returned. 
the lakes and the wetland areas that are now known as Te Nohoaka o Tukiawao, Sinclair Wetlands, was teeming with kai, including whitebait, eels, lamprey and bird life. As the Taieri Plains were developed and lands privatised, the Kaitahu Whanau were confined more and more to their lands reserved from the 1844 sale of the Otakao block and reliance on a lake, Tatawai, a small lake of 124 acres to the northeast of Lake Waipuri. Lake Tatawai was drained and this impacted severely on the environment, and naturally, Māori shifted from the area over time as they were unable to gather their mahika kai. During the Naitahu Claims Settlement Act 1998 negotiations, they obtained ownership of the property known as Sinclair Wetlands, 314 hectares of former farmland that had been allowed to rewater. This purchase was to help settle the long-running issue of the loss of Lake Tatawai. Run as two separate trusts, the first an area of 56.5 hectares for the beneficiaries of those with rights to the former Lake Tatawai, and the balance an area of 259 hectares for mana whenua who have mahinga kai rights and interests in the Taieri wetlands area. We appreciate the information obtained from Okaha, a Dunedin consultancy service for the five Runanga. This is Judy Southworth for Heritage Matters. Researchers from the anatomy department at the Otago Medical School have been researching both the lives of 19th century women on the central Otago goldfields and the health problems of men and women at that time. This report from Bill Southworth. Doctors Charlotte King and Haley Buckley have turned their research into a series of talks for residents of Central. They have poo-hooed the stereotypes of women on the goldfields as being either barmaids or whores and discovered they lived a variety of lives and made the best of the tough conditions of the time. Charlotte and Haley's research also examined the exhumed bones of pioneers from early graveyards, which gave them some idea of the diseases and inflictions they had suffered. The talks in Central were a roaring success, according to Charlotte, and more had to be held by popular demand. Historically, women haven't been given very much of a shout in terms of their narratives being told um, around the gold mining industry. If you think about the gold fields, you think about these brave, adventurous men, and the women have really been left out of that narrative, but they did exist, and people are hungry for those stories, and the stories uh, that make up their genealogy as well. So many people in central Otago are descended from the gold miners that came there. They know that there were women there, but they don't know what their female ancestors were up to. So So what sort of women were there? All kinds of women. Women who had diverse stories just like women today. So there is this popular opinion that there were um, camp followers and women involved in nefarious business who were predominating on the gold fields. But oh, do you mean like dance halls and brothels dance halls, and stuff yeah, like that? brothels, all of those kinds of trades that uh, capture the popular imagination. But in actual fact, those women were probably the minority on the gold fields. There were plenty of women who came as single women seeking their fortunes. There were women digging. There were women who were... Uh, acting as wives, mothers, all of those kinds of things, and entrepreneurial women uh, finding their own way to make money on the goldfields. We'll come back to that later, but Haley, I'm particularly interested in the fact that many people who went there, people didn't know one another, so things like bigamy were reasonably common. Would you like to comment on that? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it certainly would have occurred, probably potentially out of necessity in a lot of cases, particularly with women, because what we do know is that the men, um, you know, in the first rush through in 1861, people left Victoria and rushed into Gabriel's Gully um, and left their families behind. So women may have been left there and then had to find their own way. It's the stories through the newspapers and so forth, a litter of women trying to find their men again. Um, and men, I guess, may have just a matter of opportunity. Um, and then if women, you've got to realise that at that time, if, if you couldn't actually um, prove that you had an honest means of living, in inverted commas, um, and, and an abode, a permanent abode, then that was actually illegal. And so women were very vulnerable to being left in a state where they would have actually been arrested for vagrancy. So um, if bigamy was occurring, then it may have been more out of necessity from a female perspective than, than anything else. I read a story recently about a young woman who came there to get married and she had a wedding dress with her. And when she went searching for the person she was meant to be marrying, she couldn't find him. Mm. So she got a job at a hotel and the hotelier um, asked her to wear the wedding dress. So uh, within two weeks, she was proposed to and married. So single women didn't last long, perhaps? Women, I think probably there may be an assumption that women were coming here looking for husbands. That right. could be the case. Yep. Um, I do know that there was a lot of, um, there was definitely a, a, a shortage of women here early on. And so they were encouraged to come. Um, it was very, very difficult to find women to work in households as domestic servants and so forth. Um, so, yeah, I guess a single woman, if she was looking to get married, then there would have been plenty of opportunity. Charlotte, apparently there were quite a few entrepreneurial women. Do you have any uh, examples of that? Yeah, absolutely. So women running their own business was a little bit scandalous if you were a single woman, a young woman. Um, it's not that it didn't happen, but it was much more common for women to be running their own business as a widow, having taken over from their husband um, upon his death, which gave them a bit of legitimacy. Um, there were also women who set up in more women's businesses, so people who would set up as monthly nurses, which is one of those coy Victorian ways of talking about women's health. Um, there's great stories of women who set up as one thing and then find a way of living uh, that is a bit different so they jump onto that so there's a woman in Bendigo she sets up initially as a midwife makes enough money as a midwife in order to buy shares in a mining company and in the next census she's listed as a miner uh, which is quite unusual at the time but she was a shareholder in the try again mining company which already sounds like they're on a hiding to nothing um, and then from that money, she manages to buy shares in a hotel, uh, which she takes over on the death of her brother. She runs that until she runs it into bankruptcy, goes back to monthly nursing, then buys another hotel. So women are finding their opportunities where they can and uh, jumping onto them and grabbing them with both hands and finding ways to be resilient. They must have been very resourceful because things are pretty tough in those days. I mean, there was no rail link through there initially. Um, it was very hard to get the sort of goods we're used to today. So they had to be pretty tough, didn't they? Absolutely. And as a woman, you could well, if you followed your husband, end up as the only woman in a canvas town uh, for miles and miles around 
around. So having to live that life of, of isolation without female company around you would have built them tough for sure. The second leg of their research involved the exhumation of bones. As Haley explains, these were a treasure trove of health information. Yeah, so we've worked at a number of cemeteries in, uh, in the region, starting at Milton in 2016. So this was an early um, farming town, but also did include some people who had, uh, had been miners or were even still engaging in mining. Um, and, uh, and then we moved into Lawrence, where we worked on the first, that would have been the first cemetery um, when Gabriel's Gully was first found, so that was in use for the for a few years from 1861, maybe even before 1861. Um, and then the story is that all of those people were exhumed and moved to Gabriel Street, to the new cemetery. Um, what we found in our project was that that just wasn't the case, that there was actually um, at least 25 people still left at this first cemetery, and that included both men, women and children. Um, and then also we worked at the Chinese section in Lawrence as well, and then most recently at Drybread, right in, in central Otago. And what what did the bones tell you? So we found um, that there was, as expected from the historical records of that time, very high infant mortality. Um, we found um, evidence of um, a lot of trauma, um, fractures that had healed, but uh, also a case of one man who we're pretty sure we know who it was, was a man who'd been engaging in mining at Quartz Reef, and he had evidence in his skeleton of, of pretty catastrophic trauma to his head and his other bones from being crushed in a, in a rock fall, which was a very common for, cause of death amongst miners. Um, being killed in a rock in a fall of earth and in inverted commas is what um, is frequently listed in the death registers, and um, evidence of tuberculosis in the in the bones as well, um, and very poor dental health, oral health, terrible terrible teeth. Lots why, of why would that be? Do you think? Um, we think it's um, uh, probably linked to sugar high intake of sugar. Um, even though people were relatively poor in the early days, they could still get access to sugar, no matter where they were. Um, but uh, poor dental health is also a, um, sort of linked to overall health as well. So a high amount of periodontal disease, gum disease, um, is sort of linked to, to poor health overall. Any problems related to alcohol? Not that you can see from the bones, um, but we do have, um, in the work that I've been doing the last couple of years in the, on the fellowship, uh, looking at old patient registers and death registers and stuff, um, there is a lot of delirium tremens there, people in the old Dunstan hospital being treated for That's where delirium. people get the shakes or yeah. start to see visions yeah, so and so on. Yeah, so the DTs, the DTs, so if you, if you can't get access to alcohol and you're have been drinking a lot, then you get the shakes. Um, there's also a case of um, a few cases of dipsomania, which was um, a, a mental illness, which was where people had an uncontrollable urge to drink. <laughs> so um, I don't have the exact numbers on the top of my head, but this is kind of one of the big assumptions of the goldfields is that everybody was lying around drunk and stumbling about drunk all the time, but it's not actually 
um, something that is very high up on the list of the most common uh, causes of death or, or diseases. So it was certainly an issue, but not as much as I had originally assumed. And what about longevity? Were you able to discover how long they lived compared with today? Um, so as I said before, a lot of um, babies died and they either didn't make it to full term or they didn't even make it past the first week. A very high percentage of that. And like 30 to 40% of the deaths um, right through are um, babies, infants and young children. And early on in the death registers, we see the, the age of death is, is um, quite low, so sort of 40s to 50s for the, for the men. Um, but then in the later registers where we're sort of looking at um, just you know, the last 10 or 15 years leading up to 1900, the, the um, age structure changes. So there are more people living through to the 80s and even to their 90s but still a lot of babies' deaths. Right. <laughs> and uh, Charlotte, were you able to discover how many of those women were single and how many were married, or is that not possible? Of the people that we look at when we're doing our cemeteries work, uh, there's very little evidence in the bones for whether someone is married or not. In fact, there's none. Um, so we can't What, what really about say. the records? Were no records kept about the person? Um, the records for the sites that we work on are lost, um, so we have very little information. That's one of the reasons that we're doing this work, is to try and give these people back their stories when we just don't have their stories at all. Um, and so from the biology, what we can see sometimes is um, if women are buried with children, we can obviously tell that they're mothers or are likely to have been mothers, and so we can, we can see that kind of thing, but we can't look at relationships necessarily between individuals. There is, sorry, there is flora, of course, oh, yeah. from, um, from Milton, St John's Milton, the first place that we excavated. We actually found the graves of a man and wife um, next to each other and uh, we were able to identify who they were from what was written on the um, coffin plate. So it was actually the local doctor who was a Prussian um, and his wife... Flora, and she'd actually died before him, about nine, ten months before him, um, in childbirth, and um, had actually been married to the previous doctor, and had like six children with him, and then three with with her husband um, Gustav, and then he late he died um, within a year of her. So we know from being able to actually identify them that that she was a wife and a mother. Mm. Also at Drybread, there was the double burial um, of a man and a woman at Drybread as well. And he likely died some decades before her. He was in his sort of mid-years. And then we just have fragments from um, her coffin plate where she died at 62 years of age, I think. So, But they were buried side by side, so likely a man and a wife. from the archival work that I've done, um, the patient register uh, work, women, if they enter the hospital, are either recorded, there's nothing recorded for their occupation, um, or a married woman or wife. There were a num- quite a fair proportion of the women that were treated at the hospital were um, domestic servants. So they were working as servants, domestic servants. There was the odd barmaid, but not 
not very often. And there was one woman that was a storekeeper and another who was a spinster. She was quite an interesting story. She actually came into the patient register like seven times over a period of 10 years until she eventually died. Um, and finally, <coughs> Chinese remains. Didn't the Chinese, most of them, send their bones back to China? Or did you find many Chinese bones to look at? Yeah, so the work that we did at Lawrence, um, we did quite a lot of excavation stripping off there at Lawrence in the Chinese section and even beyond into the bush and found a lot of graves. Um, and a fair proportion of the graves that we excavated had been exhumed. So they would have been those two exhumations, mm. um, the last one being the notorious Ventnor that, that, that sank. Any, any differences in health conditions compared with Europeans? Uh, yes, we are finding um, particularly, well Charlotte could probably talk more about that with her chemical evidence of diet and another colleague of ours is looking at microscopic evidence of, um, of periods of stress in the teeth and the Chinese certainly suffered a lot more childhood periods of stress, so probably infection and undernutrition, like exponentially more than the Europeans did. But it does also look like when they get onto the goldfields, they experience a better quality of life um, and better than the contemporary Europeans on the goldfields, um, particularly in terms of their diet. They seem to have more access to meat um, and things like that. Um, That's unusual, isn't it? You, you would have thought that they had better vegetable gardens, but better access to meat? Yeah, it seems it seems so. And one of the things that, that I've been thinking about around that is that the Chinese really formed a very cohesive community um, and really worked to help each other out. So you got to the goldfields, especially at Lawrence. You went to the Chinese camp. They helped you out, made sure you had everything you needed until you were on your feet. Whereas I think the Europeans were a little bit more every man for themselves. You've been listening to Bill Southworth interviewing doctors Charlotte King and Helly Buckley from the Otago Medical School. The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30am and replayed on the following Sunday at 7pm. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Poheritaonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the Motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand. Check out visitheritage.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.